Amen. Thank you, Brad. So yeah, good morning. My name is Drew, and I am one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I was wondering if the summer crowd would catch up to us today, and it has not. So thank you for being here this summer. Uh, We've enjoyed the room being full. I told you about a month ago when we went to one service, you need to pray, and you need to pray, because if we're this full in the summer, you can imagine what it will be like in the fall. And so do pray that the Lord would lead and guide us as we consider that. But it is, it is fun to all be together, isn't it? And uh, we've had some really important things to talk about. We've been in the middle of a series on spiritual disciplines, crucial spiritual habits that uh, have been part of the Christian experience for as long as the church has been in existence, but that are of particular importance to us as we come out of this time of pandemic. And so as we talk about spiritual formation, we use categories. The categories typically of knowing, being, and doing, of content and character and competencies. In other words, there are things that you need to know and be growing in your knowledge of if you're going to be growing in your faith. Doctrine, theology, it's very important. And then there are character qualities that you should be cultivating and growing in. The fruit of the Spirit, becoming a more patient person, more courageous, the virtues. These things are important as well. And then there are the spiritual habits, the spiritual practices that you need to be developing competency in. Habits. And this is a series on the habits. We're talking about the doing part of spiritual formation because it is so typically neglected. We're afraid, I think, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is, is I think we're afraid of even inching towards legalism, and so we just stay away from it. But there's a lot of doing that is good, right? Effort and grace are not opposed to one another. Merit and grace are opposed to one another, but not effort and grace. And so for... For thousands of years now, Christians have been talking about a rule of life, about the, the habits, the crucial spiritual practices that make up a Christian life. But everybody who's talking about these things now, today, in our day and time, they're writing about spiritual disciplines and habits, and they're writing about the spiritual life, and they realize that in doing that, they have to also talk about the implications of the new digital technologies that have become so much a part of our life. How dangerous and how damaging they are. Specifically, for our purposes this morning, we're talking about screens, smartphones, tablets, computers. Not what they do for us, but what they do to us as we use them. The way they're changing us. Literally, all kinds of science is being you know, done and written about where it, that we, are, we are learning how all of this new digital screen technology is, is rewiring the brain circuitry in our minds in harmful ways, shaping the way we think, shaping the way we relate to one another, shaping the way of our being human in the world. And so here's my question this morning as we come to the text. It's just this. As you think about your own discipleship to Jesus, does your loyalty to Jesus and to his way, if we're going to follow Jesus, we follow his way, does your loyalty to Jesus and your commitment to follow him in his way, does it affect your use of technology? Have you even thought about that? Is that a category you're even working with? Does it, and how does it? Because it should. It has to. And so many, so many of us, uh, you know, we're we're eating the fruit of the ways of just uh, unwise uses of technology. And so I know a lot of people who are having to correct course 
because of, because of some mistakes, because we're just now, with all of this new technology, learning the implications of it. And so what we want to do this morning is just thinking broadly about the issue of technology. We want to look in the scripture in two places. We're going to see two very contrasting ways of life. Jesus' way of life contrasted with our typical way of life. And we're just going to talk about the dynamic of those two contrasting ways of life and, and, how, and, and ultimately how technology really does shape us in a way that's contrary to the way of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, that would be really helpful. We're going to read from Mark chapter 1 first. It's just a, a scene in Jesus' life uh, at the very beginning of his ministry. And then we're going to go from there to read from Luke chapter 12, which is Jesus' own description of the way our lives typically play out. And you're going to see there's a, there's a, there's a steep contrast between the two. And so... Let's begin in the Mark 1 passage, if you'll read uh, along with me. Listen to one scene in the day of the life of Jesus here at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. Mark 1. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town that, we may, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, casting out demons. And then come to the Luke 12 passage. Read this and see in it a contrast, or at least I'm going to explain and, and, and draw out the contrast here. Here's what Jesus says is true of us. Most of the time he said, he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If you then are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for the nations of the world seek after these things. Your Father knows that you need them. This is the word of the Lord. So here's what we want to do. I'm worried this is going to be confusing. But here's what we want to do. We want to look at the way of Jesus versus the way of our lives. As as it's contrasted there in those two texts, the way of Jesus versus the typical way of our lives. But then secondly, we want to look look at the way to the way of Jesus because there's a way to his way. And then thirdly, we want to look at the way to the way to the way of Jesus, because that is really what we're, we're dealing with in these texts, okay? So the way of Jesus, and then the way to his way, and then the way to the way of his way. If you're not confused, then we have hit it off. We're on good, we're in, we're, it's a good start, so let's walk through this together. Let's talk first about his way, and let's look at the text from Matthew, or excuse me, from Mark chapter 1. It's just many, one of many examples of Jesus' way, his rhythm of life, and here's the way I would capture it for you. Jesus Somehow, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but somehow he was able to be busy but never anxious. Busy but never anxious. The Gospel of Mark is fast-paced. It's frenetic. The different scenes are often, it's the shortest of the Gospels, 
And the different scenes are often connected by the word immediately. If you have a Bible and you look in Mark chapter 1, at least six times just in chapter 1, you find that word immediately. So it's, it's like listening to Brad pray a minute ago. Like, it's like fast, fast, fast. Like, Brad, you, you were like high speed, man. I love it. I was like, I am gonna not, I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to be the person who talks the fastest in the, in, the, in the service this morning. This is great. But it's because he's excited. And it's because Mark's excited. And when I talk fast, it's because I'm excited. So we get excited and we talk fast, and that's what's happening in Mark's gospel. And so the impression you get from reading is that Jesus' calendar was just full, one thing after the other after the other. In the first chapter of Mark, beginning in verses 16 through verse 34, which is the part just before the section that we read, commentators say that it describes a single day in Jesus' life. It was his very first day of earthly ministry. Here's some of the things that happened. This is why it would be helpful for you to be able to look at this in, in Mark. But if you don't have a Bible, let me just tell you. He, on this single day, he recruited his first disciples. He then immediately went to church and preached the sermon. He then immediately went, and there was a demon-possessed man there, and Jesus healed him. And then he immediately left church and went to Peter and Andrew's house. And Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus immediately healed her. And then at sundown, after that really busy long day, the whole city gathered at the door banging down the door wanting to get to him, and Jesus came outside and ministered to them well into the night, we're told. And so you read that, and you're exhausted because it's go, go, go all day long. And that was, but here's the thing, as you read through the Gospels, that was fairly typical. Later in chapter 6, Mark describes a day where there were so many people coming and going from the place where Jesus and the disciples were staying that they did not even have time to eat. And so Paul Miller in A Praying Life, which is a book that's meant a lot to a lot of us, he commented on this. He said, Jesus' life was one interruption after another. If he lived today, he said, his cell phone would be ringing constantly. And then he went on to explain. He said, if we love people and we have the power to help, we're going to be busy. And no human being has ever loved people as much as Jesus does. And no one has ever had more ability to help people than he had. And so no one has ever been busier. And yet, see, and yet those who have closely studied the Gospels also notice how he never seemed to be overwhelmed or anxious. He was never in a hurry. He never complained that there was too much to do. Mark Buchanan, he wrote, he said this, Jesus was slow. He strolled. He talked to this person. He showed kindness here. He took a nap. He ate a meal. Philip Yancey said that the one person who never suffered from a Messiah complex was the Messiah. And he described the Messiah complex as an anxiety about having to fix the world. Anybody in the room live with that? I know I'm not the only one. They come to Jesus here in Mark 1 and they say, everyone is looking for you. Man, what does that feel like? Seriously, like to your soul, what does that feel like? Everybody's looking for you. You can feel their anxiety. It just pulsates off of them, but... It's just fascinating to watch Jesus interact with them. He just shrugs it off. He's immune to the demands of others. In John chapter 11, his friend, Lazarus, is dying, and the family sends word for him to come immediately before he dies, and Jesus takes three days to get there, and Lazarus dies in the meantime. What's going on here? You're seeing, you're seeing a person that is unlike any other person you've ever seen. This person, this man, he's so centered. Look what he says. Everyone's looking for you. 
He doesn't even acknowledge the demand. He says in the very next verse, let's go to the next town to preach because that's why I'm here. He was possessed by what Mark Buchanan calls a holy must, but it did not throw his life out of balance. And so Mark Buchanan writes this. He says, most of our drivenness and anxiousness comes from not really knowing what we must do. And so we do a lot of things, but we do them all with grim, fretful haste. We do them with panic, but no zeal. There's no center. There's activity. There's busyness, but no center out of which we live. But Jesus knew who he was. He had a firm grip on his why. And as a result, he was busy, but not anxious, not overwhelmed, not burned out. It stands out as you read throughout the Gospels. And, and can you just, can you just um, acknowledge with me what a wonderful way to live? And he can teach you to live that way. You can live that way too. But let's be honest, we don't, do we? Now contrast that with the way most of us go through life. Jesus' own words in Luke 12 describe it well. He says, don't be anxious about your life. He said, don't seek what you are to eat and drink. Don't be worried. And those, all of those descriptions there in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 and 29, they fit us pretty well. He contrasts our way of life with birds that don't worry about the future and the flowers that neither toil nor spin. We do. I mean, we do. We tire ourselves out with activity. I mean, the psalmist describes the person who gets up early and goes to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. Isn't that a vivid imagery? There's hard work, which is good, and then there's anxious toil, which is not. And this is some elegant psychology, actually, from Jesus here. He describes a person in these verses who is toiling and spinning. He uses the word seeking. They're seeking, right? And, and I don't know why I've never thought of this, because you all, I think, know what a, what a fan of, like, um, fantasy literature I am. But do you remember what Harry Potter's position on the Quidditch team was? What was he called? He's the seeker. And so it was his job, if you've not seen it, and there's, my son was, like, this close to being on the Florida State Quidditch team, and then he just crushed all of our dreams for his academic, or for his, for his athletic career. There's actually college, they do this in college, by the way, guys, if you didn't know this, like there's literally Quidditch that happens. But in the books, it's this fantastical, and his job on the team is to, he was the seeker, and he had one job, and there was this one little, you know, little thing called the snitch, and he would fly around, he would zoom around all over the, you know, what do they call it, a pitch? What do they call it? I don't know, the Quidditch pitch. And, and, you know, and if he, could, if he could grasp me, if he could catch the snitch, then the game was over. So he was the most important player. So he would zoom around, like reaching out on the, over the end of his broom, trying to grab a hold of this thing so that he could win the game. And that is a great, great, vivid imagery of the person that Jesus is describing here who goes through life just seeking, zooming around, trying to capture something that will cause them to win in life, striving driven, we're told here, by worry. See, all underneath all of that, all underneath all the toiling and spinning is seeking, and underneath the seeking is worry, which refers, the word there in verse 29 refers to a person who's like a ship in a storm. Emotionally, they're all over the place. There's no center. Jesus was centered. This is the person, there's no center. There's just busyness. And so you have toiling and spinning and seeking and worrying, and all of it is deriving from an anxious heart. This, this section of the text in Luke 12 is dominated by the word anxious. And here's where it gets interesting, at least for me, is that the root 
of that word translated anxious means distracted. That the root of anxiety is distraction, to be preoccupied, to be divided. That's what that word means. Now, secondly, I think this is confirmed when you consider the way to the way of Jesus. So the way of Jesus was this life of busyness but without anxiety, this, the opposite of this distracted, harried, hurried, frustrated life. When you consider the way to his way, and the way of Jesus was this, was this being busy but not anxious, the way to his way was to think, literally to think. He's telling us how to, he's telling us the way to his way, and he's telling us the way to his way is to think. And this is where we start to get into to some of the issues that, that I mentioned at the beginning because there's a study done uh, recently to measure how our thought patterns affect our brain anatomy. This is a lot, there's a lot of research going into this right now. And researchers recruited people who had no experience playing the piano. And what they did was they taught these people a simple melody on the piano. And then they were split into two groups. Once they had learned the melody and they were told to practice a certain amount of times, they were split into two groups. One group sat at the keyboard and played the melody on the keyboard, and they measured the brain activity while they did this. The other group sat at the keyboard, but only imagined playing the piano, and they recorded their brain activity. And by mapping the brain activity of the two groups, they found that those who only imagined playing the melody showed the sh same change in brain chemistry and anatomy as those who actually played the melody. So Nicholas Carr summarized the findings like this. He said, our thoughts exert a physical influence on us, or at least cause a physical reaction in our brains. We become neurologically what we think. Now that squares with how Jesus tries to help us with our anxiety in Luke 12. His first diagnosis uh, is our wrong thinking about God, which creates unrealities that we live in. So he says, look at just some of the things he says in Luke 12. He says, God, God feeds the birds, and of how much value are you to the birds to him? And he goes on, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? And if God clothes the grass, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? He's saying, look, when you're anxious, you're claiming, the anxiety is a claim. When you're anxious, you're claiming that you are less valuable and loved by God than the birds are. The flowers grow for a season and then they're gone, and, but you're a cherished soul that will last forever. And when you're anxious, you cl you're claiming that God does a better job with the flowers than he does with you. And when you're anxious, you're living in the unreality that you're in control of your life or that you being in control would be a much better arrangement than God being in control of your life. And so Jesus is exposing all this wrong thinking, and he roots it all in unbelief. He says, verse 28, O oh, you of little faith, because every behaving problem is a believing problem. And so what do you do with your unbelief? If the root sin, the root of all disobedience to God, of all failure to love God and love others is unbelief, and what do you do with your unbelief? Well, what Jesus tells us here is that you think your way out of unbelief. You think your way out of anxiety. Martin Lloyd-Jones the great preacher in London in the 20th century said, sometimes you need to pray less and think more. Now, I thought that would get a chuckle because that doesn't sound very spiritual. It sounds very Presbyterian, <laughs> right? But he's taking his cue from Jesus here, who says, verse 24, consider, look what he says, consider the birds. What's Jesus trying to get us to do here? Consider the birds, consider the lilies. That's the way to overcome unbelief, you think it out. That's what that word means. 
you draw out the implications of what you believe. You fill your mind with right thoughts of God. That God is great. Birds don't sow, they don't store up, and God feeds them. He powerfully provides for them. And flowers, they don't toil and spin, and God clothes them. He does all the work. He, and if he can do all the work, if he can feed birds and clothe grass, and he is able to do all of that, then he is able to provide for you too. But he's not only able, he's willing. Because he's not only great, he's also good. He's a generous father. Jesus says, verse 30, look there. He says, people who don't know God personally, they seek after food and drink and clothes because they think they've got to do it on their own, right? They've got to arrange for their life. But you, he says, you don't act that way. You, you need to know that you have a father and he knows what you need and he's a generous father, he's a good father and he'll make sure you always have everything that you need. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. It's his joy, he says. It's his delight. It's what he lives for because that's how good fathers act. But you might say, well, how can I know for sure? Well, Jesus said, consider the birds. Consider the lilies. Think out the implications of what you see of how God is taking care of the natural world. I would say to you, consider Jesus. Take the gospel and think it out. Think out the implications. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has reconciled you to God. If you believe you are no longer his enemy, you are a cherished child. Now think out the implications of that. And then think out the implications of all of that is true, not because you were bad and now you're good, not because you're moving forward, you have a perfect record of making good decisions. God loves you for Jesus' sake, which means his love is constant. It's a sure thing. Now think out the implications of that. And then think, you did nothing to earn this, so you can do nothing to forfeit it. And then think out the implications of grace, and you arrive at the conclusion I'm absolutely safe in God's love. And then you live from that place. And that's how you go to work against your unbelief. And that was, Jesus, that was the secret to Jesus' success. It was the reason that he could be so busy and yet not be anxious. He was full of faith. He was living from what he knew to be true of the Father's heart. We read this just this past Wednesday in community Bible reading. Jesus was full of the felt love of God. Remember when he looked in John 5 to the other people and said, I don't know how you guys do it. You know, he, he like looks at us and says, I just, I really don't know how you guys are like even getting up in the morning and going through life because you're running around trying to get praise and approval from one another and you don't have the love of God in your heart. He said, but I don't need your approval. I don't need your praise. I don't really care what you think about me because I'm so full of God's love for me. And it was that felt love of God in him. He lived from his belovedness. But here's the thing. Listen, it doesn't, it didn't just happen magically. All of that that you see in the Son of God walking the earth, it didn't just happen magically. It wasn't because, it wasn't just because he was God. There was also a habit. There was a rhythm. Jesus had a way to be busy but not anxious. And he had a way to that way, to be full of faith, to be full of right thinking about God, to be full of the felt love of God. But he also had a way to the way of his way which was to strategically seek out the solitary places where he could spend time in communion with the Father, which is what you see him doing here. So go back to the verses in Mark. Remember, it's a day, one day in the life of Jesus. The first day of his public ministry, he had come from a month and a half. If you, if you know the timeline, 
Before this one day, he had come from a month and a half of being out in the wilderness, the Eremos. That's the Greek word. The Greek word means solitary place, the lonely place, the alone place. He had been for a month and a half out in the wilderness. Then he came into this very long, very busy day. Now, what would you do after a day like that? You might expect him to sleep in the next morning, have a PTO day, go to the spa. Jesus had a month and a half in the Eremos. Came back for one day of ministry. What did he do the very next day? It says, rising very early while it was still dark, he departed and went back out to the Aramos. And the ESV does a great translation. That word, it's not just wilderness. It is a strategically quiet place. Away from distraction and noise. And so let's recap. Jesus spent 40 days in the Aramos. Came back for one very long, very busy day then got up before the sun and went right back out into the Aramos to pray. And so if you read the Gospels carefully, you see that this was his habit. It was his regular rhythm. It was a habit, listen to this, it was a habit that reinforced his faith that powered his busy but not anxious life. It was the way to the way of his way. It was the habit that reinforced his faith that powered his busy life. Jesus led a busy life, but there were times where his busy life got crazy busy. And the busier and more demanding his life got, the more he withdrew to the Aramos. For us, it's usually the exact opposite. We get over busy, and the Aramos is the first thing to go rather than our first go-to. But what we learn here, in seasons of busyness, we need more time in the Aramos, not less. And I know all of the introverts are just gleeful, right? You're just giddy with this this morning, okay? And so, but that's not, this is not, a, this is not an extrovert versus introvert thing, okay? We, I, 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 was, I was tempted to go there. It's not. It's, it's something more than that. This is the pattern. The pattern of Jesus' life suggests that in seasons of busyness, you need more time in the air, most not less. And here's my question to you. Listen, this, this should land on your soul. If Jesus needed time away in the Aramos, are you so arrogant to believe that you don't? You cannot succeed in the spiritual life without adopting this kind of habit. In John 17, Jesus said that the reason for everything he was doing his life, death, resurrection, all of it, was that so that Jesus came and did all of that so that all who believe in him could enjoy the same relational intimacy that he had with the Father from all eternity. Jesus, friends, Jesus died upon the cross for your sins to make it possible for you to experience the felt love of God as he did as you commune with him. The way the first man and the first woman talked and walked with him and spoke with him face to face. That's what you've been made for. And Jesus has made it possible so why is it so hard? Well, pride, of course. Let's be honest. Can you just be honest? You like the business, don't you? It makes you feel important. It's a righteousness. Eugene Peterson said, if you're busy, it's usually because you're either vain or because you're lazy. And if he mean, by lazy, he meant you refuse to do the hard work of creating healthy rhythms. You let the demands of others run your life. They come to you and say, where have you been? Everyone's been looking for you. And you say, well, it's about time or something to that effect. You go running because it feeds 
the part of your heart that isn't full of the felt love of God, that's looking for praise and approval from others. Somebody needs me? Let's go, where are they? You fill yourself up that way, trying to be everywhere for, and everything for everybody. But then there's also the issue of anxiety as well. It's not just pride and laziness, but anxiety. We're too revved up. We're too revved up to often develop a habit like this. Now, this is not a sermon about spiritual practices like solitude and silence. I intentionally didn't go into much detail with those because what I want to do is just finish. We just, with the few minutes we have to be together here at the end, we're, we're, I want to use all of that that I've said, the way to Jesus' way, the way of the way to Jesus' way, right? I want to talk about our technological habits. And let me explain the connection that I want to make here. Uh, and this is where it goes from a sermon to something else for just a minute. But I feel like i got to pastor us well in this if I, if I can. Andrew Sullivan, in an article entitled, I Used to Be Human. <laughs> I used to be a human being. He wrote this. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which we might endure or be reborn. Listen to what he says. This is a person. He says, If the church came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal to a new frazzled digital generation. So here's the thing, I agree. I agree with him that the greatest threat is our distractedness and the anxiety that comes from it that dominates our lives. And the main culprit, the main culprit is not just the sin in us, but the way the, way the new technologies, and particularly the phone, are, are agitating the sinful parts of us towards the very thing that is, that's unraveling our spiritual lives. Nicholas Carr has written a, a widely acclaimed book. I, I, I mentioned it in the resources there for you called The Shallows. I threatened my teenagers that they were going to have to read it. Um, I might stick to that. I need to. Pray that I will. But the subtitle of the book is this, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And he wrote the book because he began to notice as an intellectual that he was no longer thinking the way that he used to think. He had this crisis of faith because he, he began to realize that he was having a hard time even making it through a book without getting distracted. And so he wasn't, he wasn't able to concentrate well enough to take in the arguments or follow plot lines. And so he went on, he began to research how digital media is affecting our brain. And he came away with the, with the realization that, for one, our brains are always changing. This is new science in the last 15, 20 years where we're recognizing this about the brain, that every behavior is creating, causing certain neurons to fire and make connections while others are going dark because of disuse. And technologies are re rewiring our circuitry away from the ability to think deeply and towards distraction. So the internet, for example, is designed to these are his words, seize our attention only to scatter it. It's intentionally designed to do that. The people who are writing the programs, that's what they want. They want to seize your attention in order to scatter it. And it encourages what T.S. Lewis called or he termed distracted from distraction by distraction. Now, this is not a controversial take. That's the thing. Everybody knows that this is the case. And so the big, biggest problem is, is that now with smartphones, we carry... We carry all of this around with us everywhere we go. So every spare moment of boredom, when we used to do our best thinking or praying or our most creative thoughts would come to us, we now touch screens and pull up Instagram or the weather app until the light turns green and it's time to go again. I've seen you at stoplights and you've seen me. Let's be honest, okay? I know how this works. 
Because our devices, they scream for our attention like an overeager child tugging on her mom's sleeve. That's the analogy Alan Noble uses. He says, our technology covets every glance, flashing lights, vibrations, bells ringing, little red dots, email alerts, notifications, pop-up windows, commercials, news tickers, browser tabs, everything is designed to capture our attention. It's an ecosystem of distraction. And it's destroying. It's destroying our habit of being attentive to God, but it's worse than that. Not only is it destroying our habit of being attentive to God, it is destroying our ability to be attentive to God because of the way it's rewiring things up here. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers, Jesus said. Think through your life and look for where you see God working. But you can't do any of that if all you're doing is looking at your phone. But it's also destroying our habit of being attentive to others. But it's worse than that. It's not only destroying our habit of being with others and being attentive to others, it's destroying our ability to be attentive to others. Sherry Turkle has written a book that's called Reclaiming Conversation because we don't talk to one another anymore. Young adults and teens, all the studies show they would rather text or DM than talk. She's written another book called Alone Together, and the first two sentences are worth the price of the book. Here's what she says. She says, technology proposes itself as the architecture of our intimacies. That's a, that is a powerful statement. She says, these days it suggests substitutes that put the real on the run, allowing us to hide from one another even as we're tethered to each other. Now these, here's the thing, listen, these are not Christians writing about how bad our phones are for, our, for us spiritually. These are people in the scientific community and social scientists who are saying that the research shows how harmful the technology has become to our humanity. And so we're saying, as a habit of love for God and love for others, turn off the screen, walk away from the device, spend time with God in his word, leave your phone in the other room, come to the dinner table and be present and attentive and have uninterrupted conversation because that is a radically subversive thing to do. When you take your kids to the park, play with them. Don't sit on the bench and scroll through social media. When you're waiting to check out at Publix, don't pull out your phone. Embrace the boredom. Pick, seriously, I, I've started, y'all, you're not going to believe me when I say this. I've started on purpose picking the longest line. Thanks for laughing, Lauren. I appreciate that. I've started to do that because I, because, because I recognize that I need, to be, I need to be frustrated and bored every so often. And I've started doing that. As a personal discipline, curate the use of technology. Make it work for you. Resist the way it works on you. And where you can go analog, because here, I don't pretend to be a son of a prophet, but here's my prophetic statement. The future's analog. The future's already going back analog. Where you can get away from the technology, get away from it. Where you can go back to a, like a planner that you have to write in instead of something you're on the screen with, do it. If you journal, get off the, get off the computer and like write. Whatever you got to do. So we're talking about four daily habits and four weekly habits. And this is the last daily habit. One hour, like one hour every day with no phone. I know what you're thinking. 
That's easy. I dare you. I dare you. If you have an iPhone, go look. Go look at your screen time and see if you made it one day this past week with one entire hour where you didn't pick up your phone. You'll be shocked. Just put it away. One hour. Put it away. The scripture describes spiritual growth as casting off the works of darkness, right? Making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It says, lay aside every weight that hinders and run the race. It also says, if your eye or your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. And these technological appendages are not neutral. They're incredibly helpful, but also incredibly dangerous. And so it is a good practice to regularly lay them aside. Please don't think I have this figured out. I'm preaching to myself as much as you. I am just as guilty as all of you. But to lay it aside one hour every day. Start with that. Andy Crouch in TechWise Family, he suggests one hour a day. But then he gets a little crazy because he says one day a week. (laughs) And then he says, and then one whole week every year. And you think, yep, nope. That's no way. We have a problem He says in the book, you don't have to become Amish. (laughs) But you probably have to become closer to Amish than you think. Beloved, listen, if all you hear me saying is this, there's a rule and you need to follow the rule, then you've missed the whole point. Jesus would often turn to his disciples, the men that he loved, and he would say, come away and be with me. I just want to be with you because he loved them and he yearned for time with them because the crowds just pressed in to such a degree that he could never just have time with his friends and he just wanted to sit around the fire and eat a meal and be with them, to be together. And here's what I would say to you, that is God's heart for you. He's saying, put the phone down because I wanna be with you. But do you believe his heart? See, that's the issue. Do you believe that that's his heart? Jesus Christ lived a life of beautiful obedience and died a death of sacrificial service to us on the cross so that God could enjoy you and so that you could enjoy him. That is bread. That if you eat it, will truly satisfy you. That is the water that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. And so the, the hymn writer says this. If Jesus kindly say, and with a whispering word, arise my love and come away, I will run to meet my Lord. The world, and then he describes this experience, the world now drops its charms, my idols all depart. Soon as I reach my Savior's arms, I give him all my heart. Give him your heart. Pray with me if you would. And so Father, thank you that your word is living and active, timeless, that it speaks to the human condition, because there may be some of us in this room that aren't Christians, and yet how applicable is this to us no matter where we fall upon? This is just a human problem. We, we, we have turned our backs on our creator and sought for happiness apart from him, and there is no such thing. And so we thank you for the gospel message that in Jesus you have made it possible for us to again be welcomed into the family. And yet we have thrown away that privilege so often by 
allowing ourselves through just mere spiritual sloth and a lack of passion that we should have to be dragged into all kinds of ways of living that have and continue to damage our relationship with you, Father. And we just pray, forgive us. Forgive us that we have thought so little of time with you, of being with you. We've thought so little of your heart for us. We've thought so little of your desire for us. I just can't imagine how it's broken your heart. How you yearn for us and we've said, I'd rather just look at my phone. Would you forgive us? And then begin to do something in us. You are the maker of the brain. And so would you, over, would, you, would you override the circuitry in whatever way you have to do to call us back to faith and repentance as we just sit in this moment this morning before you? Open our eyes to see as we look around and open our ears to hear your voice calling to us, come away with me, come away with me, be with me so that we might see our unbelief turn to faith and that the result might be a life like Jesus's. It's full of good works, but not the bread of anxious toil. So let's just sit in the moment while Molly plays. Let's make this an Aramos, a place of Aramos. Father, you deserve all of our attention. You deserve all of our love. And so we give it to you now. Meet us, Father, in a special way in this moment, we pray, as we close now our service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're reading uh, with us in community while we're reading this past week, we read this this, uh, this account of Jesus with the woman, at, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, and um, he came and he was so tired that he sat at the well and there was no food in it, so he sent the disciples away to get food, and, he, and this woman walked up and he began a conversation with her, and he just was loving her, and, and again, just another interruption that became a point of, of emphasis for him, and his disciples come back and they say, Rabbi, they're worried about him, they say, Rabbi, come, eat something, and he turns to them and he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. There's a bread that is more than just bread, that if you eat it, it can take away every other hunger. And there is water that if you drink it, it can make you never thirst again. And it is, it is knowing that the, that the words that I'm about to speak to you are true for you because of all that Jesus has done for you and to have a felt, the sense of the felt love of God upon your heart. And so that's what these words mean. And so that's what we're praying, that as God sends us, that we would go, not going toward his heart, but going from his heart, going, going, knowing uh, all that he has done for us and all that he uh, feels about us because of the work of Jesus. And so receive these words of benediction. May they be food that is greater, soul food that is greater than whatever food you're going to go eat now. Food that would make every other food pale in comparison. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you and may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.